Hello and welcome to what is now episode four of Retrospect at the Euros. At the time of recording, we are at the quarterfinal stage of the tournament where there have been twists, turns, comical own goals, amazing solo efforts and surprises along the way. And speaking of surprises, that brings us onto our discussions today, where we will be debating our biggest shocks of the tournament so far. This could be players who have underperformed, overperformed or teams who have crashed out earlier than expected. Now, I don't think we can talk about players who have shocked us more than the Czech Republic's Patrick Schick. Ed, you were our Group D correspondent and made him your star player of the group. Tell us how he's been. Well, Patrick Schick um, is a centre-forward who's played in both Serie A and the Bundesliga in his career, following his early career in the Czech Republic. Um, everywhere he's gone, um, he's had a fairly decent scoring record. Um, so for Bayer Leverkusen, he's played 40 games and he's got 10 goals. Um, Bayer Leverkusen aren't an absolute top team, so I'm sure you could agree that's a decent goal-scoring record. And um, in this tournament, he has shown that he can score all different types of goals. He showed that in his first game, which was the Scotland game. He scored that header. Um, Sufal whipped in a good ball and he got on the end of it. And then, of course, he scored an absolute worldie goal of the tournament still is probably always will be and um, again against the Netherlands he showed that he can be a bit of a poacher he was right place right time like any decent centre forward and got on to the end of the tapping so I've been very impressed by him and I think depending on how far Czech Republic can progress you're talking about a genuine golden boot contender here yeah he's um He's on, what, four or five goals at the minute. Um, they've obviously got um, Denmark on Saturday. Um, another player from that group that I think has kind of shown up that we weren't kind of expecting was Raheem Sterling, of course, for England. Um, Jake, he's kind of scored all three of England's first three goals. Um, what do you think of his performances so far? I think he's been absolutely fantastic. I think the Germany game was probably the best we saw of his all-round performance. I think in the and the previous two games in which he's scored, he's been the key man in the fact he's given us the three points in those group games. But in the Germany game, we saw, I think, the whole Raheem showing the best of him. He was taking on players. There was an instance, I think, maybe after the first or second goal where he tracked back 70 or 80 yards and made a great tackle. And it's a great credit to Gareth Southgate before the tournament. There were huge questions over um, Sterling. He didn't end the season well with Manchester City. I think he got one goal in his last 10, 11 appearances in the Premier League. And but Gareth Southgate showed great faith in him. He started him and he's fully rewarded him with the faith the managers put in him. And he's been absolutely fantastic. And it's a great credit to him and the side that he's done so well. Yeah, he's really turned up uh, in a team that is kind of laden with attacking talent, which has been the discussion for a lot of the media coming into this tournament. And um, you know, a bit of an under-the-radar season, he's really put himself in the limelight. Um, Sam Portillo, I know you, you're you very keen to talk about Spain a lot. Um, one of their players has really stood out to you, haven't they, um, in Pedri? Um Tell us a bit more about his performances that have kind of gone a bit under the radar, I think. Yeah, that would be my pleasure, Sam. Um, he has stood out. I think 
when we've been given out our, our star ratings um, for each match, Pedri's only had one game so far where he hasn't picked up a star. Um, so he's consistently making an impact on the game. Um, the fact that he's dislodged Thiago um, Alcantara from the team says something about his skill set. Um, I think Luis Enrique has looked to him to be the, the link between midfield and attack. Um, and to provide a bit of um, unpredictability. Uh, of course, that can backfire because, um, as we saw in the game against Croatia for the first comical own goal, um, it was a wild back pass from Pedri that, to the goalkeeper that um, opened the score in there. But generally, I think he's been fantastic. And it's easy to forget that this player's 18. He's younger than Phil Foden. He's younger than a lot of um, players in that age group who are talked about as the next big thing. And only one year ago, he was playing for um, Las Palmas in the, in the second division in Spain. And, and look at him now. He's in the quarterfinals of uh, Euro 2020. Yeah, this is real kind of making people stand up and notice him. Um, a player I want to kind of bring into the discussion um, is um, Mela for Denmark their right wing back and uh and um I know there's a lot of talk about his Atalanta teammate Robin Gossens um for Germany but I think he, he has really stood out above him and probably I mean I'd like to see him in in the team in the tournament as well Jake you covered group B um and I know you're a bit of a stan for him what um go on <clears throat> tell us about him well the first thing to, to add on Mela is that I've just absolutely loved watching him from an aesthetically pleasing point of view. He's very pleasing on the eye. He's, I think maybe the fact he's so quick and slight helps with that, but his ball retention is really, really good. He's an intelligent player. He's um, played, like you said, at his Atalanta teammate Gosens. So he usually plays on the right for Atalanta, but for Denmark, he's played both roles. He's played left and right in a three and a four. And he's been amazing, is the best way to describe it. He's been up and down. I think it was ridiculous the amount of ground he covered in the uh, the Belgium game. He's got he's got two goals from fullback, which is ridiculous. I mean, Harry Kane's got one. McMahon's got two, and he's a, he's a fullback. And it's amazing, really. He's come through Genk. There's a, there was a tweet... I saw of like the list of players at the Euros that have come through the Genk Academy or they've been young and they've been developed through then. It's ridiculous. And they've obviously found a unearthed another gem then. I wouldn't be surprised to see him get a move to a bigger club in the next couple of summers. Yeah, and another another player I think has kind of shocked us, especially from like a British and uh, perspective, is Andrei Yarmolenko for Ukraine. Obviously he's been at West Ham a couple of years and not really um not really stood out. He, I mean, there's been a couple of games, I think, where he's turned up and has made a difference, but it's not consistent. But I think it's easy to forget for Ukraine how um, he is their second all-time top goal scorer behind his current manager, Andrei Shevchenko. But I think this tournament's really highlighted the talent he has. Um, he's kind of every every attack that Ukraine have, he's been involved in. And the goal he scored against the Netherlands was quite superb, where he cut in on the right and like lashed it into the top corner he could cause England real problems um on Saturday and I think he has been a bit of an unsung kind of star of the tournament from from perspective of play, people who might not have been aware of the talent he has 
Um, I think, Ed, would you agree with that? Um, yeah, I think Andre Yarmolenko is a very good example of how international football can be a totally different beast to club football. Um, we saw very similar, I don't know if you remember, but in um, Euro, um, I think it was 2016, um, where having been a Sunderland reserve, Giacolini turned up for Italy big time. I think Yarmolenko's form to Ukraine have been, you know, not not been playing for West Ham when West Ham have been as good as they've been for a very long time, has very similar vibes to that. Yeah. Um, and I think a, a couple of players, another couple of players I'd like to chuck in, um, Sam Portillo, I know we've been just talking about Italy as, as well. I think coming into the tournament, um, Italy, a lot of people are talking about Immobile, Insigne as star players. But um, the couple, I think, probably are standing out at the minute, are Locatelli and Spinazzola, Sam Portillo. What do you, you say about those two? Yeah, well, I think uh, similar to... Mela for Denmark. Um, Spinozola, I believe, is a right-footed player playing on the left, um, which gives him quite a, a unique um, look when he's on the wing um, because he's able to cross it with the left foot. He does have um, a capable weak foot, but also cut inside um, with the right. And I think um, it's becoming well noted now that... Um, Mancini likes to instruct Spinozola to basically play as a winger. So he's he's a winger in all but name. Um, he sometimes he's even playing closer to the penalty area than Insignia. So they swap places. Um, and yeah, parallels with um, Mailer for Denmark. Really, he's been a joy to watch. Um, he's really key to the. Um, the attacking dynamism that Italy have and, and that they've been doing so well with. And Verratti um, has taken um, Locatelli's place in the last two games, but that doesn't... Um, you know, Locatelli still exists and he's still a great option from the bench. Um, he's... I think he surprised people because he was known in the, um, in the domestic league as a defensive midfielder. But um, he's, I think he scored two goals against, uh, was it Turkey? Switzerland. Switzerland, that's right, in the second game. Um, and, yeah, I think they've both been fantastic. The main thing with this Italy team is they are a cohesive unit. Um, and so, although we can talk about these two star players, um, it is a team effort and they're doing great so far. Yeah, obviously it sounds like it is the tournament of the wing-back so far. Um, I'd like to flip discussions now onto players who have come into this tournament expecting to set it alight, but have really been a bit of a damp squib. Um, Kylian Mbappe, what do we think's gone on there? Ed? He just, um, he hasn't been as clinical as we know he can be in a PSG shirt. In um, 2018, when he was, um, was he 19 years old when they won the 2018 World Cup and he absolutely set that tournament alight? Like, he's just not been anywhere near as good as we all know he can be. I don't know if that's um, 
due to the presence of Benzema, who he himself, obviously, um, individually, has been fantastic for them, probably their best player in the tournament. But I think the presence of Benzema has kind of distracted Mbappe and Griezmann a bit, which is why we haven't got the best out of those two. Yeah, I, I, I just surprised about him. He kind of didn't really... It's even creating things. So I think there was, there was a good spell against... Um, Hungary, where uh, was it Hungary or Germany? One of the first couple of games where he he looked great, and I, I know he scored an offside goal against um, Germany. But apart from that, he's been been a bit toothless. And there was a chance that really stood out to me against Switzerland when obviously they crashed out. But we'll get onto that later. Where he there was a chance came to him, and you're so used to seeing him just lash them into the net, but he just he scuffed it wide. Um, it just really surprised me. Jake, do you think he's what do you think happened with him? It's really hard to put like our finger on it because he's cl- he's clearly an extremely talented player. You could, I know people are very afraid to use this word in football. We could maybe argue he was slightly unlucky. There were a few chances where you thought like it must be goal bound or the keepers made a a great save. There was the one in the um, just before France equalised uh, in the Switzerland game. They went the France went up the other end and he curled that shot just wide of the post. He kind of he did the classic or the classic Mbappe we've seen where he's opened his body out. He's curled it wide. And I think the Switzerland game was the key one because in the group stage he had been really bright without getting that goal and everyone thought maybe you'd just kind of click into life. And then when you saw him step up for that penalty, it was almost like it was written in the stars in the worst possible way. The fact this superstar hadn't scored yet and then he obviously goes up and I, would, I, I hesitate to use the word misses the penalty because I think it's a great save by someone. But I, I think it just wasn't his tournament. He's still extremely young. He's, he's only 22 and there'll be brighter times ahead for him and France. And I think if they, the best thing that he can do is probably put this tournament behind him as quickly as possible and move on and hopefully use it as fuel to... Like the five hundred hung to win future tournaments. Yeah, um, Sam Portillo, have you got anything to add on Mbappe? Um, yeah, I would echo what Jake said. Really, I think um, he's been a victim of the fact that football is a game of fine margins. Um, he has looked amazing. I mean, he's he's so fun to watch. He he looks like he's playing the game at a different speed to other players, and the way he can. Um, slalom in between defenders it's been amazing to watch as always so I don't think that part of his game has declined at all but um, yeah he he he's left the tournament without managing to score and he's missed the most important chance of all which um, ultimately saw France knocked out so I think his time at this tournament will be remembered as a failure but we have to remember that this is an incredibly talented player, top five in the world. Um, and himself and France will be back. They'll be ready to compete at the um, World Cup. And I don't think goalkeepers um, should be confident when they're facing him in the future because he will score again. Yeah, of course, he's got so many more Euro tournaments to come as well. Um, another star player who didn't really turn up for the books was um, Bruno Fernandes. Um, of course, 
everyone raves about him at Manchester United, but it, he's rocked up for Portugal. He got dropped after the first two games. Um, Jake, why do you think that might be? I was just thinking. I was thinking about this earlier, and I think Bruno Fernandes might maybe the case of burnout. He has played a ridiculous amount of football over the last two years for both Sporting Lisbon, Manchester United, and Portugal. He starts virtually every game for United. He plays ninety minutes in a large proportion of them, and I feel like this tournament is he's he's come. It's come to him and. He's basically just got nothing left in the tank. I think that has also combined with... in For Manchester United, he is the main man. He is the star. Everything goes through him. Whereas Portugal, that isn't the case. They've got, you, when you've got Cristiano Ronaldo on your side, you're not going to be the main man. That's a, a fact. So it, it's basically hard. My point is, I think it's harder for him to have as greater influence in the Portuguese side as he does for Manchester United and combined with the fact that I think he is he's just extremely tired it was hard for him to make an impact I think he, he was dropped for the last two games isn't he? I mean Bruno Fernandes dropped was a ridiculous story but they did you could argue maybe they did miss him though slightly in create, creative uh, wise against Belgium but I think it was a case of burnout and the fact that he's in a more, I'd say, almost balanced side for Portugal. And he plays slightly deeper as well. So it's not, I don't think, again, it's not a case of like worrying about him. I'm sure next season he'll be back, but he does need a good summer off. That's the, the point I'm making about him. Yeah. Of course, he's part of that Portugal team that did crash out a bit earlier than people were expecting. Um, kind of another group of players I say group it's kind of three players kind of in particular is um up at the front of Germany obviously they did go out to England um but the way um Joachim Löw set up his team he didn't really take out and out striker he had Werner and Volland as his two forwards and but then he didn't start them he played a front three you had your Havert, Havertz Muller Nabri Sane were all kind of rotated. Um, Ed, were you a bit disappointed by Germany's attack, attacking front three? Um, I was, yeah, because like you say, we didn't really have a uh, um, focal point to their attack. And that very rarely works. You pretty much need to have uh, number nine um, up top like an out-and-out number nine to be successful. I think the only team I can think of in recent years um, who's been very successful without an out-and-out striker is Liverpool with um, Bobby Firmino. But I think we didn't really know um, who was where in the Germany attack. And quite frankly, I don't think they did either. Yeah, that's an interesting point there. Um, Sam Portillo... uh... Is there anything to build on from um, what Ed's saying about Germany and their front three? Well, I would like to build on it, um, what Ed says, and then uh, politely knock it down. Um, <laughs> I think that there is a counter-argument to be had about um, what Joachim uh, Le... Sorry, I know he's been their manager for over 10 years, but I still can't pronounce his name. Um I think there's a counter-argument about what he did try to do with their front three. 
Um, and I think you need to look no further than Chelsea for the blueprint. Um, I mean, two of the players come straight out of Chelsea, Havertz and Werner, um, and they both did their job. They were functional in the England game. There are a few times where Werner was almost slipped in behind, but um, the centre-backs did a great job in stopping him there. Um, Havertz sort of floated across the, the the edge of the final third, if you like. He, he likes to pick up the ball in midfield and then shift over this way and create space for the others. Um, and I think it was Havertz who slipped in Muller towards the end of the game um, where he, Muller really should have scored that chance. Um, but I think there's only so much you can blame the individuals um, for failures like this. Um, and the same goes for Bruno Fernandes, really. If you're an international coach and... Um, you have plenty of time to think about how you can incorporate these individuals and build a system that gets the best out of them. And with players like Serge Gnabry, Thomas Muller, um, Kai Havertz, Timo Werner, Kevin Volland, he had plenty of material to make a winning formula. Um, and I, I believe this is Germany's worst finish um, at a major tournament since um, Löw took over. So some of the blame has to lie with him, I think. Yeah, he's been a fantastic coach, like you said, for the 10, 15 years he's been in charge. But the last two tournaments, it really has unraveled. I think before Russia 2018, they have, they've, they've reached at least the semi-finals in every tournament, which is amazing. But they've definitely been caught in transition. These last two years, they've... They've been trying to fake, like he tried to exile Hummels and Muller and then he kind of had to rely on them to bring them back because they didn't really have enough experience and they've kind of got young players dotted in about the squad, which I do think they can build for the future. I think Germany have a, a good young squad and under Hansi Flick, they'll, they'll be, I mean, Germany will always be back. The interesting thing I noticed about Germany is that Joachim Lowe was obviously... I'm like you, Sam Portillo. I'm still not sure on his name. I'm just going Jurgi Lowe. But he, he was the assistant under Jürgen Klinsmann. And then when they won the World Cup in 2018, Hansi Flick was the assistant to Joachim Lowe. So they've obviously got a great, in typical German fashion, they've got a, a model in charge for replacing their national team coaches. But I think... The future will be bright for Germany, and unfortunately, I think it will. That that miss for Thomas Thomas Müller at the end was almost poetic because I think that might be his last kick in international football. Um, yeah, I think this is an interesting one. Another player who I think, um, so speaking of that Germany England game, who who, ter- who did score eventually, that people I know have been kind of questioning whether his form's not there is Harry Kane. Um, I think those first three, the first three games in the, the the group stage games for England, he he really kind of went under the radar. He was, he was really deep at points. And there was a few times where um, I know we discussed it in in the first podcast after match day one, but um, a couple of times where he was just deep, not in the box where you'd expect him to be. And it just looks a bit out of character for him. And whether um, people were saying this, um, his future with Tottenham was on his mind or, or anything. But um, then he goes and scores the second goal against um, against Germany, and um, I think he did he did do well in that game. I it's probably the best of the four 
he's um, played in so far. And I think that goal is going to give him a hell of a lot of confidence going into the, the quarters and the semis. And you, you look at teams like Ukraine, and typically they are teams that Harry Kane does very well against. Um, you look at his qualifying record where we are playing teams like... Um, playing teams like Ukraine and, and Czech Republic and he does pop them away. So you'd like to think that goal with the confidence he's got will build him up. Ed, do you think he's had a bit of a disappointing tournament? Um, I don't think he's been as bad as some people are making it out to be. Like It's Harry Kane. He's never um, that far away from a goal. And I think the fact that he went three games without a goal and everyone was acting like it was some kind of massive crisis is testament to how regularly he does actually score. Yeah. Right, I'll end it. So I'd add on, on Kane is that in the Germany game, like Sterling, I think like I think that was his best overall performance because he was him. There was actually the four players were involved in both goals in Sterling, Kane, Grealish, and Shaw. That link up, if you watch that, he makes a really clever kind of movement in between the centre halves for the first goal. Sterling plays it into him, and then he gets laid off wide for the cross into the box, and it was a really great combination play. And it's what we've almost been waiting to see. From England, that combination play between uh, the front three players, and it's really pleasing to see, and it's hopefully something that we can build on in the next few games. We hope. Well, another it's interesting you mentioned like the next few games because another thing that I've heard say uh, said about Harry Kane is that in Russia he scored so many goals in the group stages, and then he got his last goal of the six he scored in the round of sixteen. In this tournament, if he can reverse that, obviously having not scored in the group stages, then he he could lead England to glory. We hope so. Of course, football is a team sport and not all about individuals. And some teams this tournament have shocked the odds with some amazing and equally underwhelming performances. I think starting off with the teams that have exceeded our expectations, you've got to look at who's in the quarterfinals at the minute. And... um. Ukraine's name in there, I think, has shocked a few people. Jake, you backed them before the tournament to do quite well, I remember. Um, how have they lived up to your expectations? Well, is the first point. Very well. They've they've almost played almost as expected. Like that, like they say, teams reflect their management. Ukraine have been a bit gung ho at times. Bit not really sure what you're going to get from them, but they've made it through to the quarterfinals. The first they've ever been in a major tournament which is fantastic for them and I think they've played really well they there were signs early on in that um Netherlands game where they were two nil down not really showing anything and they kind of found that spark as we said for the aforementioned Yarmolenko and I think he's really taken up the reins to be their talisman and he's almost dragging them through the the tournament with the help of Zinchenko who had his best game so far against Sweden but I think it's great credit to Shevchenko and uh, the job he's done. As, as we mentioned before the tournament, they finished above Portugal in their qualifying group, and that was no fluke. And they managed to ease their way into the quarterfinals with a narrow last gasp win against Sweden. They'll they'll fancy their chances against England because they're severe underdogs, but they they'll back their chances at uh, having a surprise result here. Do you think that Sweden game, though, on the flip side, was helped the fact they were playing against one less men and in that latter stages? No, 
yeah, uh, 100%. But you can only beat what's in front of you. And the red card was uh, the red card was deserving for Sweden. But you could argue, yes, yeah, you could argue Sweden were maybe unlucky. But Ukraine definitely took a, a grasp of the game once they had the the extra man, and they made they made it count eventually. But I think their overall play. They, they, there's some teams where they're not really sure what they to do against ten men, but Ukraine, I think they really stepped up. They showed that they could have a more possession-based side to their game, and they took a deserved win in the end. Yeah, another team in the quarterfinals, which they overcame ten men in the last sixteen, which again went down as a massive shock, um, was the Czech Republic. Um, Ed, do you want to discuss kind of how they played last sixteen and how they've kind of as a third place? finishing in their group, they've made it into the last eight. Yeah, well, um, kind of similar to what Jake said. Um, actually, exactly the same as what Jake said. You can only beat um, what's in front of you. And what the Czech Republic had to dispose of was a 10-man Netherlands side after Matthias de Ligt was shown the red card. Uh, deservedly so, by the way. Um, which obviously changed the game because the Czech Republic were then able to go on and win it. But at the same time, when it was 11 versus 11, the Czech Republic were a very compact unit. Obviously, they had Suchek and Holes, who have been fantastic this tournament, especially Holes, um, sat in front of the defence. And they kept, uh, for the most part, apart from that one Daniel Marlin chance, about 30 seconds before the red card, uh, they kept Netherlands at bay. And um, they did well to beat a 10-man Dutch side because sometimes mentally it can actually be harder when you play 10 men because people expect that you're going to then take the reins and win it but they managed to Yeah and I think they they kind of got the most unpredictable quarter-final you'd argue with Denmark obviously I know Denmark on there on a bit of momentum at the minute after putting scoring eight goals in the last two games um, and that I think that's going to be a very close game to call, and you, you you wouldn't put it past the Czech Republic to get a result out of that game and get through to the semi-finals, and then who knows what can happen. Um, another team that probably if I say arguably that that pulled off the biggest shock of the round were Switzerland against France, um, and whether that was a bit more to do with France's kind of Didier Deschamps ineptitude in changing formation and putting Rabiot at left wing back and left back and. They were kind of all over the place, but I think Switzerland really did show up that game and they showed incredible fighting spirit to come into that. And I wrote my um, wrote an article, which is up on Retrospect Sport now, on how um, Vladimir Petkovic matched up the French man for man. And that really worked in, in their favour by forcing the French out wide, which left this massive gap um, down down the opposite side um, for them to exploit and a cut, two of their their first two goals that Seferovic scored both came from that by dragging the attack out one side of the uh, Swiss defensive block and then exploiting the wing backs on the opposite side. Um, Sam Portillo, do you think um, do you think Switzerland deserved that or do you think it was more of a uh, one off result? I think they absolutely deserved it. I mean. Uh, you can point your fingers at France and how they didn't step up to the um, the level that was required. But at the end of the day, 
those 11 Swiss players that were on the pitch and the substitutes and coaching staff, obviously, they they beat the world champions and they deserved it. Um, I think you, France had the moments of quality that you'd expect um, during the game. I mean, Benzema's goal, where he controlled the ball behind him and sort of ricocheted it off the ground into his stride. Um, Pogba's the third goal from Pogba, at which point um, I think everyone thought it was game over. Um, France was through. And that was sort of the, the climax of uh, France's quality. But Switzerland, hang on. And when you've got um, an informed Seferovic up front, Shakiri always steps up uh, for his national side. Um, and Granit Xhaka has an amazing game as well. I think I, I can personally believe the difference watching him play um, compared to the highlights I've seen of him at Arsenal. Um, but they they seem to have leaders all over the pitch. And also, I think it's worth mentioning um, their right wing back and Babu. He's looked good throughout the tournament. And Petkovic brought him on in the second half, I think. Or it might have even been extra time. But um, he really exploited um, the French fatigue on the flanks. Um, I, I, I think, yeah, it, it was a monumental day for Swiss football and it should be celebrated and respected um, for what they've done, which is beating the world champions. Yeah, of course. Uh, Jake, was, did you want to add anything? Sorry, Jake. It was a great... Yeah, I think it was a, a pleasant and unexpected surprise and it really kind of kicked the, the that day. It really kicked the tournament into life like that day. I think that is fourteen goals in one day. As a short will come on to the Croatia Spain game, and like Samples had already mentioned, Petkovic deserves great credit for his substitutions. At three one down with about fifteen minutes to play, you're really not thinking that Switzerland are going to get anything out of this. But Barbu came on. He made a difference. He got that cross in for Seferovic. But and of I think it's Gavranovic as well. He came on a sub. He got the he got an offside goal just before he equalised, and I think he also got a, a goal. At, he got a goal disallowed against Wales earlier on in the tournament, also having come on as a substitute. So Pekovic does, deserves great credit for that, and also I think Zuba was a really impressive performer throughout the, the game. Putting the cross in for Seferovic's goal, and he was up and down for so long of that game. It was ridiculous his energy in that game. Won the penalty which Rodriguez missed. Um, and I think it's, it's great. It was, it was great to see because at 3-1, you would just think, oh, France were going to cruise to this victory. But there was a shock in this tournament. It was uh, greatly welcomed. Ed, what would you make on that? Um, as you were kind of alluding to at the end there, there were um, a couple of times where we thought Switzerland were down and out. And that, for me, is the most impressive aspect of this performance because um, they really did show like the ultimate underdog fighting spirit. There were multiple times in that match, I thought, that's it, they won't win now. Even when they were 1-0 up, Ricardo Rodriguez, golden opportunity from the penalty spot to make it 2-0. When he squandered that, I thought, France will probably come back onto that now, like come back to win that now. And then... Um, when they, in like the space of a minute, went from 1-0 down to 2-1 up, I thought, yeah, Switzerland won't pull themselves back up 3-1. 
you think they are absolutely dead and buried. And then they still somehow manage to get themselves level at 3-3. And um, obviously they won the shootout. So like, I think it was absolutely fantastic. And um, they showed that in European football, the underdog is very much alive and kicking. Yeah. I think what we you say about um I know Jake said about um the substitutions that Petkovic made. What happened when Mbabu came on was they went to four four two to match France again and that's where they did best. Um like their progression now they play Spain in the quarterfinals and I'm interested it'll be interesting to see how they do against them. Um because Vladimir Petkovic is very set on his formation and that formation he started the France game with is something that he's played throughout the tournament and I found it interesting how it was France that adapted to match up to them rather than the other way around um but that's for another that could be a whole new podcast but um Sam Portillo um how do you think they'll do against Spain I think they will give Spain a run for their money um I think that the dynamic of the game will suit Switzerland. It will be a massive test for them, of course, because this Spain side wouldn't have got to the quarterfinals if they weren't good. Um, and Spain um, present probably a different threat to France. Um, France's main threat, I would say, is in the form of runners. Um, so Mbappe, um, Griezmann, Benzema even... Um, and the the moments of quality that the individuals have, whereas Spain is very much um, a systematic threat where they dominate the ball. Um, sometimes you watch Spain and it feels like the other team don't have the ball or get into the other half for half an hour. Um, and but the way that will suit Switzerland is because their well drills are playing um, the five back formation. Uh, so those wing-backs can drop back and protect the wide areas. Spain has been creating a lot of chances um, from wide areas with crosses into the box and um, cutbacks. Um, and Switzerland, if they shut down those wide areas, I think they can really hurt Spain on the break because uh, Pau Torres and Americ Laporte, um, or Eric Garcia when he's played, they haven't looked very confident um, in defending their box. They're good at winning the ball high up the pitch and distributing, but when they have the likes of Ferovic and Shakiri, um, who will be very confident after beating the world champions, when they have the likes of those players running at them, I think Switzerland um, will manage a goal or two. What I think, I'm hoping, is going to be a thrill of this, because in... Three of the four games Switzerland have been involved in, they've either scored or conceded or and or conceded three goals. And with Spain's like they've found their clinical form in the last two games. You're hoping this makes for a filler. And I completely agree with you, Sam, with that Spain, they defend in the method where is if you keep the ball and the opposite don't have the ball, they can't score. But when uh, they were very lucky, of course, with the first goal they conceded against Croatia, but Later on in that game, it was proven that once Laporte and Garcia and Unai Simon were put under severe pressure, that they do concede chances at quite a regular rate. I mean, the third goal is at the 93rd minute of the game and the cross comes into the box and I think Pasolik, he heads it, he heads into the net and he's unmarked in the six-yard box, which is like horrendous, horrendous defending. 
And if Switzerland can take advantage of that, they will, they will fancy themselves for goals. It's just whether or not they can keep them out. It might be a 3-2. I'm hoping for that anyway, but it should be a great game. Yeah, of course, need to remind everyone of the 2010 World Cup where Switzerland beat Spain by pretty much playing how Sam P, you described there, with Spain in a lot of possession and then Switzerland hit them with a shot goal. Um, but yeah, I think Seferovic could have fun in this game, especially with... Um, if you look at the, the way he scored his, both his goals against France, he made a late run into the box, headed in, and I think he can... is similar to how Pasalic scored against them as well. Um Kind of moving on, you look at teams looking to now win the tournament of the eight. You have to be clinical. And looking throughout the tournament, who has been the most clinical? You've got to look at your um, kind of XG stats and who's scored more than they've created. And Belgium, I believe, are winning that. Um, Sam Sam P, um, you've got some interesting stats on Belgium's, how clinical they've been. Um, I have. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we've crunched the numbers. Um, did you want to zoom in on Belgium? Yes. Okay, so Belgium have uh, accumulated an expected goals tally of 4.3, which basically means with the um, quality of chances they've created and the shots they've taken, uh, more specifically, they should have consi- they should have scored uh, either four or five goals Um They've actually scored eight, and th- that's the biggest margin, quite comfortably, of any team um, in the tournament. Um, it's the most clinical of any team in the tournament, and that represents, I would say, the quality of the finishers they have. I think Lukaku scored three, De Bruyne two, so they're responsible for five of the eight goals. On the other end of that spectrum, uh, Spain are the most wasteful that they should have scored um, over three more goals than they actually have. Um, Belgium, quite interesting, interestingly as well, should have conceded um, more than they have um, by the largest margin again. Um, they should have conceded 4.5 goals, to be precise, and they've actually only conceded one. So the, what these stats do is remind us that with a world-class goalkeeper and a world-class player or two up front, that can be the difference. Yeah. I mean, we can we can discuss these numbers all day for the quarter-finalists and that, but we're here to talk about shocks. And there are teams that aren't in the quarter-finals that you really would expect to be. Um, France, Germany, Portugal, the three group of death qualifiers all now out and the group of death is now dead um that's a real shock it's the first time since the world cup in nine (laughs) it's the first time since the world cup in 1950 where neither france or germany are in the quarterfinals of a major tournament which is i think quite shocking um yeah so where ed where do we think it went wrong for well for france we'll we'll sort out i know we've discussed their loss to switzerland but obviously um thing we've already alluded to it with um, Adrian Rabio, um, as good of a player as he is, you know, seen him in midfield for Juventus and Paris Saint-Germain, and he's a very good player. But I reiterate, we've seen him in midfield for Juventus and PSG, and he has played at wing-back. He was out of position, and he, he wasn't very good. 
Um, again, we alluded to it earlier with Keely and Mbappe. Something about their front three, even though they did score two class goals, that Benzema one, by the way, what a touch. Um, but something about their front three wasn't quite clicking. Pogba scored an absolute belter, but his work off the ball, I don't rate at all, to be honest. I think like when France have the ball, Pogba's up for it and he wants to be the man to make a difference but it's no good doing that if you're not going to help your team win it back and I think maybe having N'Golo Kante alongside him makes him a bit complacent he thinks oh N'Golo will win it anyway and then he'll pass it to me and I can get an assist but like it's like it's on him to track back as well which I don't think he does do enough I think in 2018 um, it was much better when you had a Matuidi in there too Jake, you seem to grimace there at some of the things Ed was saying. What would you have to say to that? It's the constant criticism of Pogba. I, I do agree, though. He, he He's not to be relied on a two-man midfield, even if you haven't got a Kante beside you. there was, I think you made the great tactical point about how they they basically opened France up through the middle. And for the... For the, um, for the second... For the, sorry, for the first and the third Switzerland goals... Both so when you play in the two-man midfield, you can't almost overlap on each other because obviously if you create a straight line in midfield, you can just pass around it with ease. So for both of the goals, Pogba and Kante were left too straight, and for the third goal, Xhaka made a fantastic pass. It basically cuts. It was the definition of cuts through the midfield with that pass because they won it off Pogba high up. Then, because Kante's just exposed on his own, so, he's got too much space to cap cover, even though he isn't Golo Kante. And they were exposed, and it is the balance. That is what you get when you play Paul Pogba. You get the moment of quality, the third goal, but then you also get him losing the ball for the third. But I think, in balance overall, I think the positives outweigh the negatives. It was just highlighted badly in the, the third Switzerland goal. Yeah. And I guess another, t- another team that obviously didn't make it through to the quarterfinals, we didn't kind of expect them to go far, were Portugal. Um, obviously, defending champions didn't get through. But I guess that's a downside of this new Euros format in that you had games in there like England, Germany and, and Belgium, Portugal in the last 16, where whoever lost that game, I think we'd be discussing here as teams that could have gone out early. Um and obviously Portugal fell victim to, to Belgium. Um, one team who actually failed to get out of the group, who I'm very surprised at, and I had them to go quite far in this one, was Poland. Um, and Sam Portillo, you, you were discussing this earlier with me um, about Poland. What have you got to say about them? Yeah, we were having a chat about Poland, and I think we both fancied them, so... Um, Maybe not for the for the trophy, but at least make a good run into the knockouts. Um, I, I mean, when you've got Lewandowski in your team, you can't rule out any side. Um, they they also have quite a well-rounded team. So, um, Kamel Glick, um, Bednarek in defence, a world-class goalkeeper in Szczesny. Um, Zielinski has been very impressive for Napoli. I think he's got... I think he had over... Uh, 30 goal contributions um, in the last league season. 
Um, so they seem to have um, quite a ra- well-rounded um, squad with quality all over the pitch. Um, maybe like a Denmark, you would say. But they just, they never fulfilled their potential. Um, there was a moment in the last game um, against Sweden where I think it was too old, but um, their dream died very quickly. And I think, Sam, we were saying earlier that we think maybe Poland suffered from specific opponents they had in their group. Um, with Spain, you're facing a team that forces at least um, eight or nine of your outfield players to drop back. So that left Lewandowski slightly isolated. And with Sweden and Slovakia, you're facing teams that are very good at forming a defensive uh, low block. So maybe if Poland were in a team, uh, in a group, sorry, with teams that played in a more open um, man-to-man way, that might have benefited them and we might still be talking about them now in the quarterfinals. Yeah, Ed, have you got anything to add to that? Um, yeah, I think Poland's problem um, was like what Sam said um, when they're playing Spain. It meant that creative players such as Piotr Zielinski um, had to drop back and that left Lewandowski very isolated. And the main problem with that for me is that Lewandowski, you know, how many times has it been said he's just broken Gerd Muller's record? 40 goals in one season is outrageous, quite frankly. But if you see over the course of his career... A lot of the goals he has scored are from fantastic centre-forward play, being in the right place at the right time. He's not a striker who creates his own chances, so being isolated doesn't help him whatsoever. He needs a couple of others to be up there with him, like obviously a Bayern, he's got Muller and Nabry, um, you know, a lot of other attacking quality, Kingsley Coman. Whereas Poland's without those kind of players creating chances for him, there's too much weight on his shoulders, I think. And although he has, you know, got a couple of goals in their last group game, he's, he's done very well. But they haven't been able to get the best out of him because he hasn't been surrounded by players who feed the ball to him. I'd like to um, like to throw an interesting question out to the panel because I'm a bit split on whether I chuck this team into a underperformers. Is um, the Netherlands... Now, oh, definitely. Yeah, see, I think for me, f- for me, I just think I wouldn't have put them as underachievers just because of the unknown of them. They there was question marks about their manager. Kind of got a a side that are very inexperienced in major tournaments, and um, like they got out of the group, which I expected them to do. But I'm not. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be particularly um, putting them in an underachievers category at this point in time no i disagree i feel i think you have to put on the achievers i think the netherlands were i think they were weak men- mentally in this tournament i think any time they were put under any pressure by the opposition they wilted in the ukraine game they got out of jail they got to go out of jail so they were tuning up and cruising and all of a sudden frankenberg makes these tactical subs where he basically removes the left hand side of his defense and then ukraine score via the right-hand side of their attack. And they were very lucky to get out of jail on that one. 
And then in the Czech Republic game, they had many chances in the first half where they're completely dominant. And then early in the second half where Daniel Marlin goes through, which maybe shows his inexperience as a player. But then they went down to 10 men and they completely collapsed as a side. I mean, Czech Republic did extremely well to take advantage of that. But I was very underwhelmed with them. So I think, and I think there's a few opinions going around on them. Sam Portillo, what did you make of the Dutch? Um, I think that it was only a matter of time before they faced a side that could capitalise on their defensive um, fragility and knock them out. Um, they looked very good in the group. Obviously, they had a perfect record with um, three wins. Um but they they did concede a lot of chances, um, and the Czech Republic. Yeah, if the Netherlands had got past them, I think um, they would have faced the, the same challenge in the next round. In the next round, and it was only a matter of time before a team put two, three, four, even five goals past them because um, they just looked so open in defence. Um, so. Exciting team, yes, going forward, good to watch. Um, but they they were not the complete um, outfit that they needed to be to go far in this tournament. Ed, do you want to add any points about the Netherlands? Yeah, I think um, the one reason why we could categorise them as underachievers is the fact that it was Czech Republic who defeated them in the round of 16. But I don't think, um, on the whole, you could brand them as underachievers because, like um, Sam F said at the like start of this discussion about Holland, is that no one really knew what to expect from them anyway. And I don't think, unless you're touted as a side who could go on to win this tournament, which Netherlands were, then you can really be branded as an underachiever. Like I think the only thing um, helping them like get their unwanted status as underachievers is how good the Netherlands side have been in the past. But this is their first major tournament in seven years, and they don't have the quality they used to. They have some decent players like Memphis Depay, Genie Wijnaldum is an absolute genius on his day. But on the whole, they're not a great side. Like Patrick Van Amnol is a, I, I like him. He's a decent player. But like at the end of the day, he's a free agent whose contract is not being renewed at Crystal Palace. Like you're not gonna win the Euros if he's your left back. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess like you said, Ed, they do have quality in there. I think Frankie De Jong did put in some good performances, and of course Van did um, score a, a couple of goals in there. I just. Yeah, and ultimately, I say for their tactical failures, uh, Frank Frank de Boer, I believe he's he's lost his job, hasn't he? From it, they've um, they got rid of him. Um, so whether whoever takes on, they've got a year and a bit to sort that out, and they've got to qualify for World Cup, of course. But I feel like it could be a very different Netherlands side going into the World Cup uh, mentally and tactically. So they might come, they might come good. They do have, they've got some good young talent in there. Um, so that could be a. Um, could be an interesting one to watch going into the Qatar World Cup. 
Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, follow at Retrospect News on Instagram and Twitter or visit retrospect.net slash sport for updates throughout the tournament. For now, enjoy the football and we'll see you soon.